Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. On the podcast this week, Frame has been acquired and is now merged with another company. Apple makes several announcements at their WWDC 2023 event, and a recent insider build of Windows introduces a security feature that could hurt performance. For this and more, keep listening to this episode of the podcast, which of course is brought to you by my awesome sponsors, and that includes ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work from anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And also brought to you by Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. And of course, also brought to you by Netrick's Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud or MDM to remove local admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy this show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. It was announced this week that Frame has been acquired by LLR Partners, a leading private equity firm. And as part of this acquisition, LLR Partners will be merging Frame with Dizian. Dizian is an LLR Partners-backed company that focuses on delivering managed DAS solutions for enterprises, business process outsourcers, contact centers, healthcare, financial services, and insurance companies. Dizian offerings include managed virtual desktops and apps that meet HIPAA and PCI DSS compliance, and Dizian is headquartered in Denver, Colorado. In order to ensure a seamless transition and minimize disruption to customers, Nutanix have said they will work closely with Frame and Dizian teams over the next few months. They say joint efforts will focus on transitioning frame operations off Nutanix systems, and this collaborative approach will allow the two to maintain the high level of service and support their customers have come to expect from both Nutanix and frame. Why did Nutanix sell the frame business to LLR partners? Well, their FAQ states that the DAS market is seeing significant growth And while Frame has steadily grown and expanded within Nutanix over the last four plus years, they believe that under LLR partners' ownership and merger with Dizian, it can more effectively capture market share and grow faster. And 100% of the Frame leadership team have already moved over and will remain with the company according to the FAQ. Now, there were some other questions in there that were answered around like changes to the platform, support, and so on. And some of those just stated that, well, it's going to be the same for now, and there may be changes later, but it sounds like at least in the short term, if you're an existing customer, there shouldn't really be much disruption. I hope this is a positive for all those at Frame. It has been a pretty great product in the past. I really loved it uh, back even before Nutanix made the acquisition of just running published applications embedded within the browser. Uh, It was always really eye-catching when they were doing it. And then obviously some others caught up and started doing that too. But it was such a great idea, great concept, and they executed it so well. It's very interesting that these private equity firms are essentially taking over all these virtual desktop 
published applications and DAS solutions like obviously Citrix being the big one, uh, now Frame, and potentially in the future Broadcom taking over VMware. It seems like it'll be a lot of private equity backed companies versus Microsoft potentially in this space. I'd like to wish the best of luck to all my friends at Frame. In a recent insider build that hit the Canary channel, SMB signing is required by default for all connections, and Microsoft have indicated this will help defend against NTLM relay attacks as SMB signing helps block malicious authentication requests by confirming the sender's and receiver's identities via signatures and hashes embedded at the end of each message. This changes legacy behavior, where Windows 10 and Windows 11 required SMB signing by default only when connecting to shares named SysVol and NetLogon, and where Active Directory domain controllers required SMB signing when any client connected to them. Unfortunately, according to Microsoft, SMB signing can reduce the performance of SMB copy operations, and you can mitigate this with more physical CPU cores or virtual CPUs, as well as newer, faster CPUs. So if you're rocking some kind of older machines, uh, then you may need to look at uh, upgrading those if you uh, encounter significant performance hits when operating with the SMB. Uh, Bleepy Computer have shared some PowerShell commandlets to toggle the setting on and off and carried a message from Microsoft's Ned Pyle who said, quote, Expect this default change for signing to come to Pro, Education, and other Windows editions over the next few months, as well as to Windows Server. Depending on how things go in Insider Build, it will then start to appear in major releases. End quote. So this change is coming. Be warned, and I believe I covered this as well uh, on a previous episode of the podcast. Microsoft released a security hardening roadmap and I believe this is on there. So there has been ample warning, and but I'm sure there's still going to be some who are caught off guard by this. Google have patched yet another zero-day vulnerability in Google Chrome, and unfortunately, this is one that is being actively exploited. This vulnerability is being tracked as CVE-2023-3079. TechZine.eu reports the high-severity vulnerability stems from a type confusion in V8, Chrome's JavaScript engine responsible for executing code within the browser. Such bugs arise when the engine misinterprets an object's type during runtime, potentially allowing memory manipulation and arbitrary code execution. As usual, Google are not very forthcoming with technical detail, so just make sure you are on an updated version of the Google Chrome browser, and it's actually been pretty common for the exploited vulnerability types to be this V8 JavaScript engine manipulation. WindowsCentral.com had a pretty good rundown on the upcoming 23H2 release of Windows 11. And as you might expect, the top feature highlighted in the article is Windows Copilot, which I talked about on the podcast when discussing the Microsoft build announcements. If you missed that episode, the Copilot feature will appear as an option in the taskbar. And the button will be front and center. And once open, the Windows Copilot sidebar stays consistent across your apps, programs, and Windows, always available to act as your personal assistant. It makes every user a power user, essentially, helping you take action, customize your settings, and seamlessly connect across your favorite apps. 
features within Windows like copy paste, snap assist, snipping tool, personalization, and more are all right there for you within the Copilot, along with every other feature on the platform. As an example, you can not only copy and paste, but also ask Windows Copilot to rewrite, summarize, or explain your content. So again, this is using that uh, chat AI capabilities, which is obviously the big play at the moment for pretty much every vendor. Uh, some are even just latching on and making stuff up, like posting articles uh, referring to themselves as the chat GPT of what they do. <laughs> Um, it's also expected that File Explorer will receive some significant UI enhancements in the latest build. There will be a simplification of OneDrive configuration for backups. Native support for RAR files is coming, which I covered on last week's episode of the podcast. Paint is getting a dark mode. Uh, Dev Drive, Dev Home will be introduced, which is something I touched on last week too, I believe. Uh, which it sounds like it would leverage Windows Package Manager, or also known as WinGet, and streamline the process for developers to set up their dev machines, and importantly, be able to back up and install the apps again. For a more complete list, I'll share a link to that windowscentral.com article with this episode, which is episode 285, and you'll find that at 5bytespodcast.com. Hot off the heels of the many Bing Chat, Windows Copilot, and general ChatGPT-inspired AI that Microsoft has been pushing hard, as I just covered in the last story on this episode, well, Microsoft has announced it's pulling support for the Cortana app on Windows 10 and Windows 11. And that will be pulled later this year. No specific date seems to have been given. WindowsCentral.com reports that this change only impacts Cortana and Windows, and your productivity assistant Cortana will continue to be available in Outlook Mobile, Teams Mobile, Microsoft Teams Display, and Microsoft Teams Rooms. Microsoft believes its recently announced AI products and services can replace the Cortana app going forward. Microsoft have announced general availability for Azure file scalability improvements for Azure Virtual Desktop and other workloads that open root directory handles. They said that Azure Files has increased the root directory handle limit per share from 2,000 to 10,000 for standard and premium file shares. The improvement benefits applications that keep an open handle on the root directory. For example, Azure Virtual Desktop with FSLogix profile containers now supports 10,000 active users per share, which is a five-time improvement. It's worth noting the number of active users supported per share is dependent on the applications that are accessing the share. If your applications are not opening a handle on the root directory, Azure Files can support more than 10,000 active users per share. The root directory handle limit has been increased in all regions and applies to all existing and new file shares. It has been an eventful couple of weeks from an enterprise infosec perspective as some noteworthy companies have been hit by cyber gangs with reports from Ars Technica about data stolen from the likes of British Airways, the BBC, Boots, Ellis, and the Canadian province of Nova Scotia, with all attacks attributed to a Russian-speaking Klopp crime syndicate. Researchers have suggested the gang has been hitting banks, government agencies, and other targets in alarmingly high numbers. The vulnerability believed to be exploited in these attacks is known as the MoveIt vulnerability, which stems from a security flaw that allows for SQL injection, uh, one of the oldest and most common classes of exploit. Often abbreviated as SQLi, 
These vulnerabilities usually stem from a failure by a web application to adequately scrub uh, search queries and other user input of characters that an app might consider a command. Ars Technica reports by entering specially crafted strings into vulnerable website fields, attackers can trick a web app into returning confidential data, giving administrative system privileges, or subverting the way the app works. And as I recorded this, it looked like some other companies were publicly disclosing security breaches, which would not be surprising if it is actually associated with this clop crime spree. In a quick follow-up to a major story covered on last week's episode, Gigabyte have released new firmware to address the major vulnerability that essentially opened a hidden backdoor on many of their motherboards. The update was released last Thursday, so if you use Gigabyte motherboards, well, you can review last week's episode in the links for that, which was episode 284 at 5bytespodcast.com to see if you're affected. Uh, but chances are, if you have a Gigabyte motherboard, you are because the list was pretty extensive. Uh, but if you do use that, then uh, definitely search for that patch or that firmware update that was released last week. BleepyComputer.com reported that Outlook.com suffered multiple outages, and some have claimed this was caused by a denial-of-service attack launched by a hacktivist group known as Anonymous Sudan. Microsoft have stated the outages were caused by a technical issue, so not necessarily a direct contradiction to the claims by this anonymous Sudan group. I mean, a denial of service attack it could be a technical issue. <laughs> uh, but the group taunted Microsoft, claiming they failed to repel their attack and that if they pay them a million dollars, they can teach their team how to repel such attacks. And they made a political statement, which I won't repeat here, since giving air to that will just encourage these types of groups to attack again and attack others because they're getting that notoriety and their message out there by doing these attacks i know this is <laughs> this is a pretty minor podcast and i'm sure they're not even going to hear it but still uh you know be the change you seek i guess bleepycomputer.com also reported this week that cisco has fixed a high severity vulnerability found in cisco secure client formerly any connect secure mobility clients that can let attackers escalate privileges to the system account used by the operating system. This vulnerability is tracked as CVE-2023-20178, and they've stated that this vulnerability exists because improper permissions are assigned to a temporary directory that is created during the upgrade process. An attacker could exploit this vulnerability by abusing a specific function of the Windows installer process. And as they're manipulating or taking advantage of the Windows installer process, it appears this vulnerability only impacts the Windows client version. The bug was fixed in AnyConnect Secure Mobility Client for Windows version 4.10 MR7 and Cisco Secure Client for Windows 5.0 MR2. The good news is, as of the time of this recording, there is no yet active exploitation. Apple held their WWDC 2023 event this week. Obviously, Apple does still mostly court the retail consumer side of things, 
but Apple devices are used widely in different industries and by remote workers. So for example, I know we used a lot of uh, iPhone devices within healthcare for various different use cases. We had doctors who were using personal MacBooks for uh, getting into their Citrix sessions. So even though like within a corporate environment, Apple still takes up very little of the footprint, uh, I think it's still worth covering. And I'm sure just even as tech enthusiasts working in IT, some of these may be of interest to you. I'm not going to cover every single announcement. I'll just cover maybe ones that I think are uh, particularly relevant. Well, first up, uh, Apple showed off their 15-inch MacBook Air, which will weigh three pounds and is 11.5 millimeters thin and is touted as the thinnest 15-inch laptop to date. It boasts 18 hours of battery life and contains six speakers. So some of the kind of limitations of the Air versus the MacBook Pro, it seems like that gap is getting smaller between them. And honestly, when I was looking at getting an update to my MacBook, I had hoped to get an Air at the time, but then the M1 MacBook Pro came out and I was like, well, I got to go Pro for that uh, M1 chip. But now it's pretty compelling again to go for those Air devices, which are typically uh, a cheaper price point. They also announced an update to the Mac Studio, including the silicone and replacing the M1 Max and M1 Ultra with the M2 Max and the M2 Ultra. The Mac Studio will be roughly three times as tall as a Mac Mini. The main difference is that the new chip unlocks new performances, obviously. And when it comes to the neural engine, it is 40% faster. Video bandwidth has been increased, which means that you can connect 8K display at a fast refresh rate. And as someone who's used the M1 chip, I would love to try the M2 chip because just something like rendering video in Camtasia versus my pretty beefy Windows machine, it's significantly faster. There is also a surprise announcement about the Apple silicone powered desktop and rack mounted Mac Pro workstation. So for those who need maybe a high end Mac Pro device and are willing to be kind of tethered to the home office or something like that, perhaps a workstation will appeal. There was also some details shared on that M2 Ultra chip, which is essentially two M1 Max chips fused into a single package. It features 134 billion transistors and will feature 24 CPU cores, up to 76 GPU cores, and a 32-core neural engine. The CPU consists of 16 next-gen high-performance cores and 8 high-efficiency cores. One major change is that the M2 Ultra supports up to 192 gigs of unified memory, backed by 800 gigs of memory bandwidth. Also announced was the macOS Sonoma, which will be the next major update to macOS. And this desktop is getting interactive widgets, and there's going to be a game mode designed to limit distractions amid a growing selection of silicone titles. So those are things that are already in Windows, but I guess if they want to try and get more of those uh, gamers over to Macs and to bring some of the features like widgets that maybe people do like in Windows, although I don't really like widgets. I'm not sure I know anyone who does, but if those appeal to you in Windows, then maybe they'll appeal to you in macOS Sonoma. There's also a new overlay feature that cuts out the speaker when using teleconferencing on your Mac. And they've also brought in some new video effects, which aren't very exciting. 
By far, the announcement that got the most mainstream media attention is the Apple Vision Pro AR headset, so that augmented reality. It has a fully 3D interface controlled by eyes, hands, and face. And the hardware utilizes a new feature called EyeSight, which uses a front-facing display to reveal your eyes to other people in the room. Interestingly, it appears they're going for a work-first device, focusing on things like email rather than gaming. Users will be able to bring a version of their Mac desktop over with the device and project it in front of them. It was announced that Disney Plus will be available on the new Apple Vision Pro at launch. And there is now a Vision OS, which is the newest operating system specifically for the Vision Pro. And I saw a lot of tech reviews about this, and some are deriding it, saying that it's not really true augmented reality, because essentially it's using cameras and it's showing a live recording of your surroundings through the AR headset, rather than you seeing clearly and looking at everything around you and having the augmented reality kind of superimposed or projected in front of you. So it's essentially a video display of what's in front of you with maybe your Mac desktop and Disney Plus being projected onto that video. And it's interesting that their big play so far is, well, use this for work. Perhaps Apple is seeing this as a way to get a larger footprint within the enterprise, uh, but at the price point of like three and a half thousand dollars, I'm not surprised they have to go for enterprise because that is a lot of money for just tech enthusiasts to spend on something for use at home. Obviously, AR plays have been made in the past. I mean, this is not new. Been around for years. I remember reading about Magic Leap being at the HIMSS medical conference and showing how you could use it for uh, training surgeons. And I thought that was a really cool, powerful use case. And particularly in the US where there's a lot of money spent in healthcare, for better or for worse, it didn't seem to gain that much traction. I would have thought that maybe that would kind of blossom this AR adoption within different industries, but it hasn't happened yet. Will Apple be the one to crack that? I'm a little skeptical, but I guess we'll wait and see. Finally, in the news for this week, Simon Binder recently shared details for the next AVD Tech Fest, which will take place on September 14th in Edinburgh, Scotland. It appears you can book your spot at the event for free on eventbrite.com right now. I already registered, and so should you, and if you're going to be there, I hope to see you there. And now, this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. First up this week, thanks to Thorsten, who shared a very helpful tip. I'd never thought of doing this before, but if you want to know what files, directories, and registry keys are created during a software install, his not standard way to check it is by creating an FSLogix rule set, and FSLogix will show that information. So I'm probably less interested in getting that for application installs, but I do have a need sometimes to do that for application runtime for like first launch of an application. Uh, I don't know if it's going to work with FSLogix rules. It might because I don't think you have to point to a particular application process or install. Maybe you do. I can't really remember. It's been a while since I tried it. It's been like over a year. I'll have to try it though, but 
Um, I used to use a similar tool. Well, not similar, but a tool that could do an install capture uh, that would show like added, changed, or deleted files, registry, um, specific changes to INI files, and more. And I found that really useful. And I haven't found a suitable replacement since. I would just use like an install capture tool, like App V Sequencer, for example. Um, but it's just not as good. It's not as clean, and it doesn't show that. Uh, exact detail. I'm sure this won't either, but I think it might be a pretty good alternative because from what I've seen, FS Logics is pretty clean when it's creating its rule sets. Microsoft Scott Hanselman had a pretty good tip, and that is to get a small USB 1080p monitor and do your presenting from there. Said that your crazy ultra-wide monitor will never screen share well, so do not use it for presenting your screen. He says he has a dedicated 1080p monitor from which all sharing happens and removes 99% of tech issues. And I saw that Guy Leach recommended uh, using the region to share app feature as well, which I've tried to do that. It's like a mental thing that I can't get over. I get very paranoid uh, when trying to like share a specific region of my screen and I don't I feel like it's overwhelming to think about what region is being shared. It's the same when I'm sharing an app as well. I'm like, well, how does this even look to the people who are viewing? Am I covering this now? I know I'm not, but I just get paranoid about it. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's my uh, silly, anxious self. Uh, but yeah, what I typically do is I have uh, my monitor or my laptop rather um, left on as a monitor and I will present my slides and my demo on the laptop monitor instead of my uh, vertical monitor or ultra wide monitors that I use. Just a quick note, the cloud paging user group is going to be held on the 9th of June at 2.30 PM BST or IST for those in Ireland, um, 3.30 PM Central European Summertime or 9.30 AM Eastern Daylight Time. And we're going to be covering an automation session plus uh, Numescent will be as a guest showing off the AbbV optimization feature. So if you're looking for a path forward with your existing AbbV packages and don't feel like doing rework, uh, you want to check out that session as well. Well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.